We've been speaking the last few weeks about calling. And we've been trying to impress upon you in a multitude of different ways, the number of different expressions, this whole idea that the main thing about us is that we're people who have been summoned by God, that we live lives responsive to Him. We're called, as Hutch talked about last week, to a set-apartness, to pursue a kind of righteous life, a holiness, a part which, from which no one will see God. We're called to be advertisements and, and commercials of the living God, assigned in places by Him to be His representatives. The Bible is way more concerned about the kind of people we are and the way that we reflect the image than all the individual choices in which we be ourselves. Well, today we're going to get a little bit more specific as we look at Ephesians, and most specifically Ephesians 10, which I'm hoping as we think about this idea that something has dramatically impacted us and has changed the way we see ourselves, or can change the way we see ourselves, and then it can change the way that we go out into the particular issues like our daily work, our relationships, and the way we spend the lion's share of our time. We are God's workmanship, Paul says created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. One of the things I've realized in recent years as I've gotten to coach a lot of youth sports is that as important as it is to tell kids, little kids, about the fundamentals, and I'm all about that. These things were drilled into me. And I feel like I am fraudulent and a heretic if I do not teach them to the young. But one thing I've realized is aside from knowing anything about the fundamentals, there's got to be something else even more fundamental going on in these little kids, for instance, on my first and second grade basketball team that no others can beat. We're awesome. And first and second grade is way too young for children to be playing basketball. Now, but we make a go of it. And one of the things I've realized is, you know what, I can tell them, something about how to shoot and what the rules are and how to dribble and how to get a rebound and how to walk out and how to keep your hands up on defense and how to do a zone. But you know the thing I realized? If they don't have a certain mindset, none of that other stuff matters. And so I have learned a few things that I tell these children ad nauseum and I have them repeat them to me. I say them over and over and over and over again. They're probably sick of hearing it, but I've found that it works. Because if they've got the right mindset, then there's all this other stuff they may or may not do rightly or well. But good things are going to happen. I tell them, and we're on defense. I get them humbled up. They come up to my knee. They weigh 32 pounds. I say, when you are on defense, your main thought has got to be, that ball is mine. I want you guys to be monsters. 37 and a half pound monsters. That ball is mine. What are we thinking on defense, guys? That ball is mine. I tell it over and over to them. Because I think, you know what? If nothing else, if they see a ball, they're not going to be a spectator of it. They're not going to passively sit there and watch someone else get it. They think, that ball is mine. So whether it's a rebound or they're playing defense, they're going to go after it because that ball is mine. If you ever play basketball, keep this in mind. I have 
three or four other things. I won't share them with you. But here's what I think. There's a lot that has to do with our mindset. That's why Troy tells his children what he tells them when he drops them off. Who are you and whose are you? There's something about your mindset, the way you're thinking about yourself and what you're doing and who you're supposed to be that affects so much else. It takes care of a lot of the details of things. And so the apostle would give us something like that. Instead of, you, that ball is mine, the apostle would say, you are God's workmanship. You are God's workmanship. You are his work of art. You are the one upon whom he has acted. He has called you into existence. He has created you for a reason to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for you to do. For we are God's workmanship, created by God in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. And it seems to me that if you start to get that mindset, I'm God's workmanship. I've been created. Called into existence out of nothing. Out of deadness. See, that's what he's talking about. He's telling these people, you know how you used to walk? You used to do whatever the heck you wanted. You used to be ruled by your own desires. He says, as for you, and this is what's interesting, you're called dead when you're just doing what you want. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit now at work in those disobedient. All of us, all of us. Religious zealot Pharisee Paul said all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. So when we were operating as free agents on the planet Earth, we were dead. That's a state of deadness in God's economy. Without hope, without God in the world, he'll later say, but he said something happened, something magnificent happened. God said, let them be no longer dead. Let them, like my son, be made alive. He created us. He spoke us into existence from nothing into something. His work of art created in Christ Jesus that we might do good works which he has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, if you get this as a mindset, it's the kind of thing that you can put on every morning when you go to work. When you start your eternal duties at home, when you go to class, when you go to a meeting, when you make a sales call, when you show up at the job site, if you think of this, it's a mindset you can put it on like clothing. And it'll be better than any snazzy Patagonia jacket you could don, or any hipster hoodie or retro members-only jacket. It'll be warmer than any sort of Carhartt coveralls that you could put on and more lovely than some floral pattern dress from Lily, what's her name? It's the kind of thing you can put on to walk into all the kinds of ways that you spend your time each day. For most of you, that's some kind of work, some kind of occupation. And so how does it help you? How does it change that stuff? And here's what I'm going to suggest. One. If you really think I am God's workmanship, we are God's workmanship. Someone that he's fashioned for a particular purpose. Someone that he's constructed, built for a reason. Never, ever 
think of your work without thinking of God. That's one thing you can do as you go out into your work each day, whether it's being a stay-at-home mom, whether it's being a loan officer or an electrician. Do not think of your work without thinking of God because you are God's workmanship. You're representing Him. Now here's why it's important to realize this. A lot of times, we think of our work, we think of what we go to do each day as the kind of thing that ought to fulfill us. And of course, that's one of the great dignities of work. is it is somewhat fulfilling, but as many of you learn on this somewhat spoiled but being redeemed planet, there's so much of your work that ought to be fulfilling, but really it's just aggravating and you want to kill someone. Right? There must be a better job out there. See, if you're ruled by this sense that my work ought to be fulfilling me, it ought to be satisfying a deep itch in the bottom of my soul. You know what's going to happen. You're going to be frustrated all the time. You're going to be pouting, grumbling, second-guessing all the time. But if you start to think, wait, 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 wait. I am God's workmanship, created to do good works, which He has prepared in advance. There's something more to my work than me just getting fulfilled. Paul David Tripp told this story. I think it's, I get those guys mixed up. He's the one with the big mustache. And he told this story at an LMPC wedding retreat. And then I saw it in one of his books, which is refreshing to me to know that people reshare stories. He only has so many of them. And he talked about a time when he had started an elementary school. And with some other people, and they were low on funds, as new schools and startups are. And he had the great privilege of, for a time, being the kindergarten teacher. Now, God loved kindergarten teachers. We have some here. And some of you realize what an amazing and astonishing gift that is, because you would kill yourself in about 32 seconds of teaching kindergartners, some of you. Well, see, one day he was in this kindergarten class, and a mom came up to him and said, It's Susie's birthday. Can we, can we throw a party for Susie? And he said, sure. He took the class out. They were doing something else. When he came back, he said, it was a birthday palace. The classroom had been converted to a birthday palace for Susie. There were banners strewn. There were little balloons tied on the backs of chairs. There were little cellophane bags at each place setting with party favors. There was cake. There was drinks. And Susie at her place was flanked by stacks of gifts. Well, at the end of the table, there sat Johnny. Johnny looked at his little cellophane bag of party favors. And then he looked at Susie's heap of presents at the other end of the table. And he let out a humph. And he looked again at his little cellophane bag and looked at Susie's great big pile of presents. And he let a little louder. <sighs> and as he did, his lower lip began to protrude. He continued to do this until his dissatisfaction had been noted and registered for all to see. Johnny was in the middle of something that was not good for him. Susie was getting too much stuff and he was stuck with a cellophane bag of 
cheap plastic objects. And he didn't like it one bit. Well, you know what happened? A wise and perceptive mother came up to Johnny. And she got down on his level and looked him in the face and said, Johnny, it's not your party. It's not your party, Johnny. It's Susie's party. And you know what the thing is? This is the point he made. He said, you will never be glad for your inclusion in the party if you must be the center of it. If you think that all of the things that you're doing on the planet Earth, like being a wife or a husband or a roommate or a friend or working at an insurance company or working for a, a boss as a laborer, if you think that it's your party, you're not even going to be able to enjoy being included in what you're included in if you think you have to be the center of it. It's God's party. This is God's party. What? He lets you be in on it. He lets you be in on his work. He includes you in it. He dignifies you in it. But the work is not all about you. It's to do good for others. It's to reflect that we are God's workmanship. If you wear this each morning and you remind yourself, I don't have to get fulfilled in all I'm doing, and this thing I'm doing, I'm not the center. I'm not the party. It's not my party. Oh, your joy levels will go up substantially. And you know what else will happen? You'll stop being paralyzed with second-guessing or indecision as you're thinking about what you might do. Some of you, because you think, because you've been taught about vocation, you've got gifts, you've got abilities, you've got passion, and you are ready to inflict that on the world. There's somebody somewhere that needs to acknowledge your greatness. You're not made to work for somebody. You're made to lead men and women and children. You're made to be a poet that woos hearts. Master architect, you know there's something, some deep special calling, some heroic status that awaits you. And if you think that the only purpose of work is that you would get impose your gifts on people? Or that it would somehow be about you getting fulfilled? You know, you're always going to be wondering when you're not fulfilled, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. You're never going to be able to stay put. You're never going to be able to be content. You're always going to be wondering whether it's a wife or a job or a husband or a school. I got the wrong one. This one's not fulfilling me. This job is not fulfilling me like it should if I were doing what I'm called to do. I'd be fulfilled. The Bible says, not so fast. Not so fast. Because God's workmanship and you've been placed places to do good works, that would imply that there are places of need that need good works, which means it's probably going to be aggravating sometimes. But your God's workmanship is not all about your self-fulfillment. And here's the great joy. Jesus promises that when you give up your life, that's when you gain it. So the sneaky way to get fulfilled in what you're doing is not to worry about getting fulfilled in what you're doing. Let me say that again, it's profound. But it's so true, and there are people in here who know it. The sneaky way to get fulfilled in what you're doing is to not care whether you're fulfilled in what you're doing. Don't focus on that. Focus on the fact that I put on this morning, I am God's workmanship. I have been placed here to do good. Kevin DeYoung said, our teaching on vocation has turned things upside down. Instead of 
finding purpose in every kind of work, which is what the reformers are aiming at, the priesthood of all believers. We are madly looking for the one job that will fulfill our purpose in life. And that is a recipe for constant second guessing. Or when you're trying to decide a constant paralysis. Oh, I'm going to do that because I'll be stuck. He's ah, God's workmanship. He's choreographing things. Don't be nervous. You're his workmanship. And your work is not about your self-fulfillment and it is not your The other thing is, if you start to think, I cannot think of my work without thinking of God. You know what else will happen? You'll realize, as God's workmanship, the main thing, the main thing about your work will only be money. Now, hear me out again. You'll start to think that the main thing about my work is not only money. Now, I've got something important to say to older people and something important to say to younger people. The Bible says this kind of stuff weird stuff. It says, on the one hand, the guys who thought Jesus was coming back next Wednesday, and so they called in sick. Why would I go into work? Jesus is coming back. Paul says, if you don't eat, I mean, if you don't work, you don't eat. Don't help the people who just who are sitting back, who are able to work, and they won't work because Jesus is coming back. He says, if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an infidel. You're worse than a pagan. Part of what our calling is, is that we provide for our families. So you got to think about money. Okay? So when you're, when, you're, when you're graduating from Summit College, you're a young person, you're seeking a job, and you're like, well, that's not going to fulfill me. That's not going to be the proper use of my gifts. Well, you might ought to just, if you got bills to pay, or you got a wife, you got kids, you got a husband, you, you might ought to just take something for money somehow. Because you got to pay for things. you gotta, you got to support your family. Don't be so principled in the sense of, I've got to do something spectacular because I've been made spectacular. But here's the other thing now. Younger people are worried about that. Now, older people sometimes start to think the only thing they're doing this for is for money. Some people, eager for money, have departed from the faith and pierced themselves with many... Greeks. That's what Paul says. Some of you will, will not do something you're called to do because you've been so transfixed by the need to get more and more things and more and more money. That makes you feel important. And you're not working for your own, to be God's workmanship. You're working so that you don't need God. Frederick Buechner talks about in Godric. He talks about my father. Being a man he was always leaving us because the thing he feared most was an empty belly. He was so afraid we'd starve, he starved us of himself. He was always leaving us. He worked and worked and worked and worked so that we would not starve. And what we were starving for was our dad. If you live and work only for money, to get a certain kind of high life, it's very likely you'll fail in some of your other callings. You're not just called to be a work, a work woman. You're called to be a mom and a dad and a friend and a daughter and a church member. There's all kinds of hats that you're called to wear. And if you're only running after money, then you're going to fail. And the other thing is, if you're only running after money, it's really bad for you if you're sick or you're like a stay-at-home mom. Because, you know, I don't think any stay-at-home moms are getting paid or even thanked. 
And even if you're a mom who works, and then you come home, and then you're a full-time mom again, you got two full-time jobs, you're not getting paid for that. If you only think of your worth in terms of getting money for something, and that is one of the biggest cultural lies that happens right now. I see it all over the mountains. I see it all over people. If people think, if I'm not getting paid for something, it isn't real. But if you're God's workmanship, created to do good works, if you're getting paid 100000 a year, it doesn't say that. Sometimes you'll do something and you won't get paid. That's all right. Because God can take care of you. Chesterton said this once about a mom. It's the kind of thinking that's got to happen. The kind of thinking that happens when you start to think of yourself as a workman. Not only, not merely someone who has economic value, but has value in other ways because God has set it up this way. He says, nature has surrounded mothers with very young children who require being taught not so much anything as everything. Babies need not to be taught a trade. They need to be introduced to the world. You don't teach your baby how to saw. You're teaching them how to be a human. You're introducing them to everything. He says, to put the matter shortly, a woman is generally shut up in a house with a human being at a time when he asks all the questions that there are and some of the questions that there aren't. You ever been around a child who asks you 432 questions? They can wear you down. Their inquisitiveness is wonderful. And if you're locked up with children, you're there to teach them everything. Do you think it matters what kind of workmanship you are? He says, how can it be a narrow thing to be everything to someone? A woman's function is laborious, but because it is gigantic, not because it is minute. I will pity Mrs. Jones for the hugeness of her task. I will never pity her for its smallness. You start to realize this like, hey, it's something to be someone's child. It's something to be someone's mother, to be someone's father, to be a church member. And I'm called to be God's workmanship. And so everything that rules me cannot be money. I have to become a certain kind of person. I have to pursue God so that I grow in Christ's likeness, so that I can be his workmanship, so that I can reflect in the places I am the ways that God wants me to. Never think about your work without thinking about God. Realize all your work is not about money, and it's not all about self-fulfillment, and that's not your part. So what is your work? What is your day? What are your daily tasks about? And if you think of this, we are God's workmanship. If you're putting it on in the morning, if you're clothing, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. Then one of the things you realize is that one of the things that you can think about your work is that you are called to be God in disguise, not in the skies, in disguise. God wearing a mask. This is Martin Luther's expression because he started to realize at the time of the Reformation this whole idea that one of the main ways that God carries out providence, which is one of those fancy words that means how God works out his administration, how he cares about people and little bunny rabbits and mountains and Douglas firs. 
It's how he cares about his creation and all of the actions of his creation is that one of the things he does is he gives people work. He gives them jobs. He dignifies them. He delegates very much, says C.S. Lewis. He seems to do nothing of himself which he could possibly hand off to somebody who's going to do it likely much, much worse. He could rule everything without anybody's help. But he's not set things up that way. This creation language, you're created in Christ Jesus, it's, it's garden language. It's you've been made new. You're a piece of work, an art piece of God so that you can reflect his concerns on the earth. And so Luther would say, when we pray in the morning, give us this day our daily bread. The bakers have been up since five making our bread. There are farmers who get up and care and grow food. There are truck drivers who get the food to us. There are people who prepare it and sell it and market it and distribute it, and all of them are doing good. And they're all God in the skies. They're all part of his ongoing concern for his world. What a freeing thing it is for you to start to think. Wherever I am placed, whatever work I am doing, the way I do it matters because I am representing God here. And I'm called to be good. If I'm an administrator, I have to do it with great care. Creating order out of chaos. Keeping books well. Making wise executive decisions if you're an executive that will impact other people and their livelihoods. Making good products and services that will be useful for people's lives. I don't know if you think of it much, but one of the ways that God loves us is through the actions of other people. Tim Keller has written a book called Every Good Endeavor that just came out. It's about work, and you ought to read it. It's very good. I have not read it. But you can just anticipate if he writes a book. It's probably good, right? But I've read some of it. But if you start to think about this, what if all the things in your life that you needed depended on you to be able to do them? The Youngblood family would be living in a rather small cardboard box reinforced by uh, duct tape if it depended on us to build a house in order to have a house. I can't build a house. No matter how hard I try, I couldn't build a house. But some people can build a house. Some people can teach children. Some people can grow food. Some people can run an organization. Some people can provide counseling for people in their trouble. Some people can help administer God's healing care in hospitals and doctor's offices. We get to help God run the universe. Realize that? It's quite a privilege. It's not our universe. We're not the center of the party. We get included, though. We get dignified. That's why we pray. You know, when we pray, we're helping God set up a state of affairs. He's ordained prayers one way that we run the universe, and he ordains our work as another way that we help him govern and run the universe. That's quite a calling. So, the calling to be God in disguise, and you put on this idea that I'm his workmanship. Don't think about your work without thinking about God. Don't think you're the sinner. Don't think it's all about self-fulfillment. Don't think it's all about money. You're there to be God in disguise. So here's the last thing. How do you pick? How do you pick what you're supposed to do? I'm not going to be able to answer every question here. You know, there isn't a place in the Bible where you turn and you read a list 
since you have been created in Christ, here are the seven criteria you must do to pick a career and occupation for yourself, where you can provide for your family and have something to give to the needs of others, and so you can be self-fulfilled, and so you can have all your existential itches scratched. There's nothing like that. You know why? Because in most places, in most of the history of the world, you didn't get to pick. First century Christians didn't get to pick what they did. You did what your daddy did. You did something menial. It's a prerogative and privilege and curse of being middle class, upper middle class, western civilizationed people that we have limitless choices. Mostly that destroys you. But it feels good to feel like you've got limitless opportunities and options. But most people don't. Really poor people don't have them. Certain parts of India, certain parts of China, you don't get to pick. But you do get to pick, kind of. Now, so how do you pick? First thing. If you really believe on God's workmanship, God's workmanship, created to do good works, then one of the first things you'll look at is what good needs to be done in the world that connects with me. What are your affinities? This is how Keller puts it. What are your affinities? What are your internal reverberations to the needs of the world? Some of you like to build stuff, and you see that people need things built. Cool. It's a good hint. You ought to build things. Some of you like to you realize that lawns need to be landscaped and manicured, and that reverberates you. Some of you know that little children need to be nurtured and cared for, and that reverberates with you. So how? look out first. Look out at the needs of the world. Which ones connect with you? That's one thing to look at. Don't start with yourself. Start with out there. Other people. Your work is for the good of others. Okay? Start there. Second, then look at your abilities, your internal desires, the things that you think you can do good, the things you think you're good at. Now, here's the problem if you're particularly young. You're going to think, because you took a spiritual gifts inventory or something, which is really a bad idea, I think, because you are not the best judge of what you can do. Invariably, you are going to think way higher of your talents than you ought, or way less of your talents than you are, but none of us ever gets that right. We are God's workmanship. Wouldn't it be magnificent if you were connected with one another well enough as you're trying to make these decisions that you would say, I am, one thing I know for sure, I am not going to make a decision about the way I spend most of my strength and energy on the planet Earth as God's workmanship without consulting wise people around me. Because I'm the kind of person who was formerly dead in sins and transgressions following my own way. What do I know about myself? I need other people who can see me and who can help me, who can call things out of me. Don't just trust your own assessment of your own abilities. Let other people who are around you help you assess. Affinity, ability, and lastly, this is a great thing about believing you live in a planet that God is superintending, that he's sovereign over, that he's working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will about. Is that look at the opportunities. What opportunities has someone given you to do that thing? If you want, if you think, man, what the world needs is my music. I need to be a rock and roll star. And man, and I'm, so, I'm, 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 I'm mad talented at playing baseball. But you know what? Nobody else thinks so. Nobody will 
buy my records. Nobody will pay to see my show. I can't really make a living at this. I can't support my family at this. I'm probably, that's probably, I probably need to stay in my garage and play for fun with my friends. I'm probably not called to that. You can guess that God's going to give you opportunities for things. Those opportunities are not insignificant. There's something to pay attention to. And there's something to lean into, you know. You know, one of the things that helped me most, as somebody like a lot of you who depended way more on the internal sense of calling than on the external, most of you are afflicted by this. You go around thinking, what I feel like I'm called to do by God is the most important thing that anybody's ever thought of ever in the history of man. It's not. He might be wrong. And it's important, you got to pay attention to it, but it's not the only thing. And you know, you've heard me say, I spent five years here thinking, I knew I had this internal desire, but I thought, I tricked these people, I should sell shoes, I don't know what I'm doing. But you know one of the things that I leaned into? God rules and overrules. I was called to this place. I took vows to this place, and people other than me said, yes. And they didn't fire me. I'm serious. I took comfort in that. They could have hired somebody else. They could have fired me. And they did it. You haven't fired me yet. You might fire me tomorrow. But no one's fired me. Well, you know what? That's significant. If it was absolutely atrocious what I'm doing here on you or to you or not doing what I'm supposed to do, then surely there'd be a lot of complaints. The opportunities you're given are significant. Your affinities, your abilities, your opportunities, all taken together can help you to decide, which is the very last thing I'll close with. In a world of endless choices, the endless choices that you worship, the thoughts that you must be all men and must be able to do all things, all you must be every woman, every possibility is open to you and you're scared to make a choice. Here's, if you want to know what God's will is for you, after you've looked at your affinities and your abilities and the opportunities presented to you, then, and this is what Keller says, when people ask me, draw them up close. You want to know what God's will is for your life? You know what God wants you to do? Decide. Decide. Pick. Pick. The way that God's will works in the Bible so often is you get to, you get to determine looking backwards. Faith is trusting things going forward. You get to look back in astonishment. Wow, God really was navigating when it felt like I was going adrift. When I didn't know what at all to do, I had to trust God and walk through the door marked fear and voila, there was Jesus whose workmanship I am. So decide. I guarantee you this, there's a lot of you who won't decide certain things about what you're going to do, what you might change, what you should go after. And you're, you're, you're hiding I just want to do what God wants to do. And really, you're just afraid. You're afraid you're going to be an idiot. You're afraid you're going to injure someone. You're afraid that you're going to be foolish and your family's going to hate you and people are going to say, what an idiot! I can't believe they did that. You're afraid that harm is going to come to you. You're afraid that God is not going to be in the future. But look, God made you alive when you weren't even thinking about. And he has created you to be his workmanship, to do good works, which he's created in advance for you to do. He's been planning a life for you. So you can do things. Steve Brown says, if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, you know that it did not get there by itself. 
You know, turtles, they don't have any hops. they got no vertical. There's been some nefarious little boy activity. There's, if a turtle is on a fence post, he didn't get there by himself. And I'm not talking about what your obligations are if you see the situation. Just the reflection that should occur to you. If you see it there, you know one thing. It didn't get there by itself. You didn't get to where you are right now by yourself. God has made you alive. He has summoned you to be his workmanship. He has dignified you. Now, you're not the, you're not the center of the heart. You ought not think of your work without thinking of God. You're called to be him in disguise. Look at your affinities. Look at your abilities. Look at the opportunities you've provided. And then, with confidence, and the God who has made you his workmanship, decide. You might be surprised to find yourself in some place where you can't boast. It's like a turtle on a fence post. But you can say, wow, what an amazing Savior.